0: God has made us for community and he's made us to celebrate. And he's made us to uh, as emotional creatures where we we attach ourselves to certain events in history and in our lives that are that are markers and significant and give us a sense of belonging and give us a sense of tradition and give us a sense of memory. And so when you go back all the way into Leviticus, God, knowing that's the way he's wired us, he gave his people Seven specific feasts that he wanted them to celebrate annually. Seven specific feasts that he wanted them to celebrate every single year there to celebrate. In fact, they weren't suggested there wasn't a, you know, Israel did not have a hallmark division that pumped out cards and calendars of here's what you need to celebrate. It was just this was who we are. And it was all attached to their identity as a people who were called by God out from among the nations and God had chosen them to be his people. And he had given them his law, revealed himself to, to them. And they had a unique way of how they would relate to him based upon the fact that he had made a provision. He had called them in a law. This is the way you're supposed to live. But because you don't live up to that, there's going to be my wrath. Is, is burns towards sin. And there's going to need to be sacrifices that are going to open the way for you who are unclean to have a relationship with me who is clean and holy and righteous and perfect. And, and so I can't look past your sin and pretend it's not there. We need to deal with that. And so he gave them a pattern by which they could have restoration. So not only did he give them a law, he also gave them a tabernacle where they could bring sacrifices of blood and different things to be able to to atone for, cover their sins, and uh, cleanse them before God, at least in, in a symbolic form. And so all of those things were laid out for them, but then attached to those, not only were these rituals there, but there was seven feasts that they would celebrate that would mark the significant events in their history Many of them were, uh, all of them had historical reasons, but they also were all prophetic and they anticipated future events and many of them have been fulfilled. Some of them have yet to be fulfilled. And so this this morning, a goal is to go through those seven different feasts and to look at them in light of the Old Testament um, cause, purpose, significance, and then in light of the New Testament um, picture of them and uh, our post-Jesus uh, coming and death, burial, resurrection, the gospel. Uh, how, how do they relate to us and whether they've been fulfilled or not. And so it's going to be a crash course in um, celebration. But uh, I want you to understand them in light of the traditions of, of our lives. What are the traditions of your family? What are the foundations of, of your family? What are the things that you celebrate regularly? What are the things that... And maybe we should think about those things in light of h- how do we approach our family? How do we approach uh, the traditions that we, that we have? Maybe there's some things that are important that shouldn't be important. And maybe there's things that should be important that aren't really that important. What are we teaching? What are we remembering? What are are these things about? And what's the purpose behind them? Leviticus chapter 23, verse 1. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, that you shall proclaim as a holy convocation or holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. So he's commanding them to be about these things and to celebrate these things and, and to do them. Uh, and the whole chapter goes all the way through them in great, uh, well, summary, um, but detailing each, each one. So the first one is the Sabbath. The first one is the Sabbath. So on uh, verse three, it says, six days you shall work, six, six days shall work be done. But on the seventh day, it is a Sabbath of solemn rest a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. So this isn't actually one of the feasts, but this is a weekly pattern that's going to be significant for them. And and it's that they're to worship on the Sabbath, which would be Saturday for us. So on their calendar, they would work six days and then the day off, the day of rest, the day set apart for the worship of God was the Sabbath, which was Saturday. And so The picture, the pattern there is God worked six days, rested on the seventh. And in the same way, they were commanded to do the same thing. And so you work six days and then you rest. That was the pattern. And it was anticipating the fact that there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of sacrifice to be done. There's a lot of worship to be done. There's a lot of things to be done. And all of those are anticipating that one day their God will provide a rest that won't involve doing more stuff but a rest that will take care of the debt that we owe. He will, he will absorb and he will, give, um, he will give us a rest that we won't have to keep laboring trying to earn or pay off or deal with our sins. And, and annually and weekly and daily sacrifices won't be, um, the, the priest won't have to make sacrifices on your behalf, on my behalf, on our behalf, to, to make sure that we have a right relationship with God, to deal with the fact that we continue to have sin in, in our lives. And so six days you'll work and then you'll rest. We're going to come back to that in the end. Um, but that's that's the first thing he notes. And then in verse four, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim in the time appointed for them in the first month on the 14th day of the month at twilight in the Lord's is the Lord's Passover and on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the lord for the 7 days you shall eat unleavened bread and on the first day you shall have a holy convocation and you shall not do any ordinary work but you shall present a food offering to the lord for 7 days on the 7th day is a holy convocation you shall not do ordinary any ordinary work now what is the feast what is the passover and the feast of unleavened bread Here's what he gives them. So first of all, these first three we're going to look at are all fulfilled in Christ. The first was the Feast of Passover. And what was significant about it, is it was celebrating God's deliverance for them from uh, Egypt, from slavery in Egypt. And it, it was celebrated the first time that he told them to take a lamb and to sacrifice the lamb and to place the blood over the mantle of their door, and the angel would come at night, the death angel, and whatever home had the blood on the doorpost, he would pass over them, and whatever homes did not have the blood, he would not pass over, and their firstborn child would die. It was a judgment of God, and it affected every house in Egypt, including Pharaoh's house, all the way down to the lowliest person in Egypt, and the only people who were spared was those who had the blood. But the blood of the lamb, deliverance of Egypt, is ultimately the picture that, was, that they, were remember, they were remembering. And so whenever they did the Passover, there's several things that they would do as part of the Passover ceremony. There'd be some bitter herbs, there'd be um, a lamb involved, there's several different things. And they were to do that annually, unleavened bread, um, to commemorate the Passover when God passed over them and then delivered them from their uh, slavery and captivity. But then in the New Testament, we understand that Christ is our Passover that these things have been fulfilled in jesus and so first corinthians 5 verse 7 says for christ our passover lamb has been sacrificed jesus is our passover lamb and he has been sacrificed on our behalf god has provided a sacrifice for us christ is our passover lamb and so then uh in addition to that, after the first month, the 14th day, the very next day, they begin kind of a continuation of Passover, which is another feast, and it's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And leaven is what you use in bread to cause it to, the, the bread to rise, to fluff up the bread. And so when you pull the leaven out, it's not going to be fluffy. It's going to be you know, flat bread, if you will. And so the leaven was a picture also of sin. They were not forbidden from using leaven throughout the year, but they were forbidden from using leaven during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so they were to take all the leaven, they were to literally to clean all leaven out of their cupboards, out of their kitchen, out of their house. They were to completely make sure there's no leaven anywhere in the house, and then they were to eat unleavened um, bread for a period of time, or whatever they ate. I, I, happened to, I had the privilege of being in Israel um, years ago, for a Passover camp. So it was actually a youth camp for really cool for Israeli kids, Jewish of Jewish origin. Some of them um, were, were Arabic and they came together because they were, they were followers of Jesus and they worshiped God together. But nonetheless, it was during Passover because they had a couple days out of school that we did this camp and all the food we ate during that time was kosher and was you know, consistent with the expectations of unleavened bread. So we actually had, um, we actually had lasagna, with matzo bread okay so instead of having the you know whatever things shell stuff that you put there it was it was matzo bread was the was the different sections of the matzo and a whole bunch of other different interesting things so they used unleavened bread and that and uh, it was really kind of cool to um, to experience things in their culture when they still celebrate these things even today and so it was a period of cleansing of leaven from one's house leaven has was set aside for the feasting on the lamb. And the lamb is what gave them the energy uh, for the journey. And so in the New Testament, what does that tell us? How has it been filled? What, what happens to that? Well, the Christian is called to put out sin from our lives that because Jesus has saved us and delivered us like in the Passover. We're to do away with leaven and we're to do away with sin and we're to live a life different in the same way when the woman caught in adultery was brought to Jesus. And he said, well, where's your Judge, where's your judges? You remember they they said Jesus, what should we do with this woman? The Pharisees wanting to stone her and wanting to catch Jesus, and Jesus said, "Well, whoever's perfect here, once you start chucking the rocks, and the rocks one by one dropped from the oldest to the youngest, and they all walked away." And so he said, "Woman, where's where's your judge?" And uh, she said, "There's nobody left." And he said, "That's right." And he said, "Go and sin no more." What he had what he had he done? He had granted her forgiveness. He had, he had forgiven her sin, and then he told her, to you, you should live different now. And so Passover lamb is about to be provided for you, and because of that, I'm, I'm forgiving you, but then your life should be different because of that. And that's what's pictured in this. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I mentioned a minute ago, verse 7, but looking at 6 to 8, a little, little broader, it says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new Lump as you really are unleavened. God, in other words, why is there still sin in your? I mean, God has provided cleansing for you. Why do you continue to sin? Corinthian Church, Cross Life Church, David England. Why do you continue to sin? What is the deal? Do you not know the little leaven is just going to continue to corrupt? But God has purified you and He's removed the sin from your life. Because Christ is our Passover lamb and he has been sacrificed. Therefore, verse eight, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, but the leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We, we should be different because of what Jesus has done. So the putting away of sin is not what saves a person. But it's the Passover lamps, the blood having been shed for us. It's Christ's sacrifice that saves us, and that makes all the difference. And so the power of the gospel frees us from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. We don't have to sin anymore. And so our lives should not be marked with sin that continues to grow and corrupt us, but should be cleansed from our lives because of the sacrifice Jesus has provided. Chapter 2. Or Second Corinthians chapter seven verse one says, "Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every from uh, cleanse our, ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God." I think the reality in most churches today are we've gotten really comfortable with leaven, because we all get the Passover thing. We're we're cool with that. And so we're, we, we don't mind celebrating the Passover lamb. Jesus has forgiven our sins. But then we just forget to constantly be making sure there's no leaven left in our house. And we don't attack it. We don't fight it. We don't go to war with the flesh. And we just let it, we just tolerate it. And, and, and he, Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 6, and he's reiterating it again in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, that no, no, we have been cleansed. Therefore, we should be different. There should be holiness and there should be completion and there should be a reverence and a fear of God in our lives as we're growing in the reality of the, uh, what God has provided in the fulfillment of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, cleansing out from your home all, all leaven and then purity is the fruit of our salvation. Purity is the fruit of our salvation, which leads us to the, first, the Feast of first fruits, The Feast of first fruits. And so in chapter uh, twenty three, verse nine, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that you give and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. In other words, you're going to take the first fruits of what you've gained, what you've produced, and your crops that you've planted, and God has graciously provided rain and water and sun, um, sunlight to be able to flourish these things and and so he's given you a harvest to provide for you bring that the first of that before God the first of it Um, not after it's taxed but the first that's on the other side note but verse 11 and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted on the day after the Sabbath the priest shall wave it and on the day when you wave the sheaf you shall offer a male lamb and a year without blemish on as a burnt offering to the Lord and the grain offering with it It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all of your dwellings. And regardless of where you're at, you're going to celebrate this. And you're going to celebrate to remember and to mark the fact that God has graciously provided. On the first day of the harvest, the priests wave the sheaf of grain to recognize that the whole harvest belonged to the Lord. It's God's harvest. All of it's God's harvest. The first of it he requires. The rest of it he gifts to you. Everything you have is the Lord's. Remember, we said God over self, okay? People over thing, eternity over time. God over self is saying that God, everything we have is God's. And just because God doesn't require it all from you doesn't mean it's not all his. He graciously allows you to benefit and to grow and to to be provided for with the rest of it. So there's a principle there that we carry over into the New Testament, not legalistically, but even beyond that, because of the grace that God has provided and poured out through Christ that we understand this concept of first fruits uh is is an important way for judging the idolatry in our hearts for stuff for things for our provi- provisions there's always a sense where well you know he says give temp, but i kind of really we need a little bit more of that wheat and so we probably should keep a little more for stuff because what else, what's going to happen when we get to that one week we don't we, we run out earlier this why don't we give him what's left at the end of before next harvest and why don't we just wait till then i mean again you get that this is the beginning of the harvest it doesn't the harvest didn't come all year long. It's only in a window of time. And so you have to set apart during that time enough to carry you through the rest of the year, right? To to give a portion on the front end of that is a little bit of a faith thing, isn't it? Because how do we know there's going to be enough on the end of that? Do you think maybe God knew that when he commanded these things for us? That he knew we would, we would not trust him. That he knew that we would be people of unbelief, constantly trying to pad ourselves. So we had a parachute, a way out in case things got tough instead of just sacrificially giving it all to him and saying, okay, God, it's all yours and you're my provider. And so I'm just gonna trust you with that. But the picture here, laying aside, recognizing the harvest belongs to the Lord. But in the New Testament, interestingly enough, the first fruits is connected not to giving, although there's certainly implications of that, but it's connected to and fulfilled in the resurrection. The resurrection. First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, we might write that down. First Corinthians 15, verse 20 through 25. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. To God the Father, after destroying every rule, and every authority and power, and He must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. The last enemy that's going to be destroyed is death. What is He saying? Well, there's a little bit of uh, what we like to call ecclesiology. You want to know end times? You want to read uh, the Left Behind series? Go, go for it. That's fine, but um, you could just read these five verses. And here's the point. Here's the point that Jesus died and was buried. And he didn't stay that way. He was resurrected. And in the same way, those who have loved and followed Jesus, who have died before us, uh, they're not going to be left. Their bodies won't be left in the grave. Where's their soul right now? Well, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Today you'll be with me in pra- paradise. And so I have full belief. Biblically, and i have time to make a long argument for this, but just in simplicity, um, that I don't believe that the Bible teaches soul sleep, that when somebody dies, their soul is there resting with their body, waiting for the resurrection. I think that the moment the person dies, they're with the Lord. Their spirit is with the Lord. Their soul is with the Lord. But their body stays. And here's the cool thing about God God has a. It, it, the body's a big deal. And Jesus, okay, big story of the Bible creation, fall, rescue, restoration. Jesus is going to not only restore his creation and restore that which is lost, but he's going to even restore our bodies that have been corrupted by sin and eventually death. He's going to take those bodies and he's going to glorify them and he's going to fix them and he's going to give them back to us in a glorified form, like before sin, how they would be before sin kind of thing. You say, well, what does that look like? It looks like Jesus after the resurrection. Look at his body after the resurrection. There were still scars that they could see, but he was healed. He ate with them, but it's other, it's other thing, kind of cool. This is pretty neat. He, like, would appear, and then he would disappear. And he, he he showed up in a room without opening the door, and then he left the room without opening the door. <laughs> you know, so I don't know. All of that comes with the body, but it sounds like it's going to be a pretty cool body that we're going to get. Well, when are we going to get that body? Well, at first you've got to die, and then you've got to wait for Jesus to come back again, the second coming. And when Jesus comes back the second time, that's when you're going to get the body, if you've already died. Or if you're alive, you'll get it then Uh, At that same time, um, it'll be glorified. We'll get to that in the Feast of Trumpets here a little later. So that's what's going to happen. And by the way, there's also a judgment of the whole earth in that moment. And God will judge death. Uh, Jesus will judge death. Jesus is God. But you got it. So that's what's going on there. So in fulfillment in the New Testament is the resurrection of Christ. So note, Christ was resurrected on the first day of the week. What day of the week was Christ resurrected? Was it the Sabbath on Sunday? No, I mean, on Saturday. No, he was he was resurrected on Sunday, the first day of the week. We'll come back to that. So Jesus said, because I live, you will also live. And so that is the fulfillment of three of the different offerings. I'm sorry, I should have that up there for you. So the grain offering brought to the priest, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the feast of first fruits, and that leads us to the next section, which is those that were fulfilled with the coming of Christ, those that marked uh, the the church age. And we're still experiencing the fruit of some of these. And so fulfilled in the church age, the church age is the age that we're in right now, this age that Old Testament called the age of mystery. We'll see. I'm sorry, that that Romans called the age of mystery. Paul in the book of Romans letter to the Romans. So what do we have to look at at the Feast of Pentecost? Well, in the Feast of Pentecost uh, in the Old Testament, it sub- celebrated the giving of the law. And so it was celebrated 50 days after Passover. Uh, you you know, the, the days after Passover, you go in the Feast of Unleavened Bread and then 50 days goes by after those two feasts, Passover, Unleavened Bread, and then you have Pentecost. Historically, this is where God shows up on Mount Sinai and he gives them his law in the Ten Commandments. And so pentecost was the celebration of penta for five or 50 and it's it's so it's marking 50 days the celebration of the giving of law for god's people celebrating the law uh, being given looking forward to a time when the law of god would be not only given to them physically but we would, would be written upon their hearts as we see in jeremiah behold the days are coming declares the lord when i will make a new covenant with the house of israel the house of judah not like the covenant that i made with your forefathers on the day when i took them from the hand by the hand to bring them out of the land of egypt my covenant that they broke though i was their husband declared the lord i was faithful to prote- provide for them to protect them to lead them and to walk them out of bondage into freedom but yet they broke that covenant we made verse 33 for this is the covenant that i will make with the house of israel after those days declares the lord I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then in Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six it says, and I will give them also, this is another prophecy looking forward to the future. I will give you a new heart and, I, and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your heart and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What is it that he's going to do? I mean, is he literally going to give us a physical new heart? Is this a symbolic language? How will he write the law on our hearts? I mean, if you were to have an open heart you know, surgery, I mean, is there going to be law written on that? I mean, what, what is, it? is this, what is he talking about? What is the deal there? Now, there's another picture in the prophets that, Uh, the Holy Spirit was pictured as a lampstand. And so he was like the lampstand, illuminating and providing light and revealing what was hidden. And that's what we're told the word of God is the lamp unto our feet, a light unto our paths. And so we have these images in the Old Testament where the lampstand is the Holy Spirit. and It's also the illumination of the word of God. And then in the New Testament, we find the lampstand in Revelation chapter one, picturing the church. So how does it pick? Is it the Holy Spirit? Is it the church or is it the Holy Spirit inside the church? Pentecost celebrates the giving of the law. Pentecost in anticipated a time where the law would be written upon our hearts. Has that happened? Yeah, it has. It happened at Pentecost. What happened at Pentecost? Well, it's Acts chapter two. <clears throat> Jesus tells the disciples I want you to go and wait. He gives them a commission. He resurrected from the dead, spends 40 days hanging out with the disciples, cooking fish for them, going in and out of rooms without shutting and opening doors, right? Remember, those 40 days, literally what he was doing is he was, he was teaching them of the kingdom. That's what we're told. Number two, he was also taking them to the Old Testament and he was teaching them about himself in the Old Testament. And some, there's a, even an image of two disciples walking on, in grief, so, you know, sad about Jesus having died and Jesus starts walking with them. They don't recognize who he is. And they're like, man, I was just really upset. He's like, what are you so upset about? Do you not know? Are you the only one in Jerusalem that didn't know what happened this week? What do you mean? What are we not? What are we upset about? Are you kidding me? And he began to tell them about the gospel, basically from the Old Testament. And he began to review scripture after scripture after scripture in light of the fulfillment of those scriptures on the cross and the resurrection. And at the end of their time, he just disappears and goes away. And they continue walking. And they're like, man, did your heart not burn within you? I mean, they were, it's like their hearts were set on fire as they listened to the Messiah, who they didn't even realize who he was in the moment, as he explained his glory from the Old Testament, which is one of the reasons why we teach through books like Leviticus, because his glory's there. And, and so, in doing that, they were just amazed. And so that happened for 40 days. And then Jesus gives them one last command. Okay, here's what I want you to do. Here's the deal, th- this is what's going to happen, okay? you're going to pray and you're going to wait for my spirit to come. Actually, before that, he says, I want you to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. He says, go make disciples of, uh, in, in, uh, of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them all I have commanded you. No, I'm going to be with you always. How are you going to be with me if you're leaving us? That's, he was going to answer that. And then in Acts, we see him saying, um, be my witnesses, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. And then he says, but God, Before you do that, go and pray and wait until I send my spirit. And so they do. Forty days they're with Jesus. Ten days they pray. Forty plus ten is fifty days. Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, they're praying. Breeze blows. Holy Spirit manifests himself. Comes upon them in a missionary empowerment that nobody had ever experienced before. And in that moment, I believe the law was written on their hearts. And how do you know that? Because little fires were above their heads kind of like a lampstand bible calls them tongues of fire and i think it has far less to do with manifestations of different languages and far more to do with the manifestation of fire where the holy spirit has indwelt them now in a unique way that he had not in the past and now the holy spirit has fulfilled what was prophesied in jeremiah and ezekiel and other places in the old testament the law was now written on their hearts And in doing that, they step outside and they begin to proclaim the glories of God and people begin to hear that in their own languages. They're speaking their language, probably Aramaic, and other people are out there and they're hearing it in all these different tongues from different tribes and different nations and they begin to take the gospel back to those places. And so sometimes in the book of Acts, Paul shows up in towns to start churches and there's already believers there that probably trace their salvation back to the moment they heard the glory of God revealed at Pentecost. And so... It celebrates the giving of the law. It anticipates the law is going to be in our hearts. And it was fulfilled when the Holy Spirit came and indwelled. And here's the good news. You don't have to wait for 50 days after you trust Jesus to get the Holy Spirit. It instantaneously happens. When you repent, you trust in Christ, suddenly the Holy Spirit comes and indwells you. Then you have the Holy Spirit. And he convicts us of sin. He gives us a desire for the word of God. He gives us a desire to gather with other believers. He helps us grow. He helps us walk with god he helps us do what is impossible in our own flesh we can now do supernaturally through the power of his spirit the same power that raised jesus from the dead is the same power that is involved in and is with the holy spirit truths in acts chapter two so that is the church age which is an age of mystery and it's still going right now it's still happening the Holy Spirit's still coming, and he doesn't manifest himself in tongues or fire over us. Only one time were the, the tongues of fire, and, and only four times did people speak in tongues, and it was in a missionary context, and it was for the Jewish people. Then it was the Gentiles, when the gospel came to them, to evidence that the Holy Spirit is not just coming to Jewish people and to Israelites, but the Holy Spirit is coming to not only God's chosen people, the Israelites, but also the Gentiles, non-Israelites, also Samaritans—those people that, that we don't really like—that that live on the other side of the tracks. Those people that we want to stay away from. Samaritans, and then fourthly, Jesus, the Holy Spirit has come, and salvation has been provided for those, like John, the, that those were, who were uh, Old Testament believers in the Messiah, followers of John the Baptist, and others um, like him. And so he has come to all the people groups of the world. Now has got, and so those four times it happened, and that was it. And so uh, that's that's Pentecost, which leads us to the Feast of Trumpets. What is the significance of the feast of trumpets? Well, these are anticipating Israel's restoration and they're anticipating the time that is to come. These are future, these are these are feasts that will be fulfilled in a future time. And so what is the feast of trumpets? Well, it was on the seventh month of the first day. So verse 23, we're given some information. It says, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, in the seventh month on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of, of solemn rest a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets a holy convocation and you shall not do any ordinary work and you shall present a food offering to the lord on that day well what is the significance of the feast of trumpets they would blow the shofar or the trumpet which is a shofar ram's horn They blow that really loud and it's a calling. Why would they do that? Well, there's two reasons why you blow the shafar in the Old Testament. There's only two reasons why the nation, when they hear that, it's not just somebody tooting their own horn. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't just somebody uh, just blowing it just to blow it. There was a reason why they would blow the shafar. And so there was two reasons. One of the reasons was to gather the people of God. So when it would blow, there was a significant reason to gather the people. They would gather because God was calling his nation, his people to come together because something important was going to be shared or said or demonstrated or whatever. So they would blow it to gather. The second reason they would blow it is for war. They would blow it for war. And so it was to call everybody together because we need to get ready. We're we're going to war. And that was the two reasons they would do it. And so it was celebrating nonetheless. Um, God used these trumpets to guide Israel and uh, the trumpets. Always uh, were used to assemble and to declare war, and so there's several places in and um, one you can note numbers chapter ten verse twelve, where you see this uh, in um, exercised in their in their history, but it was done on a, on a regular basis annually they would do it as a feast and as a t- and probably just as a you know readyment to keep them ready and an opportunity to call them to uh worship of god and so during this time, uh, we see God uses it to guide His nation. So, in Isaiah chapter twenty-seven, verses twelve through thirteen, here is some interesting prophecies, and you think about how they relate to today as we anticipate the fulfillment of the trumpet, the Feast of Trumpets. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the Brook of Egypt, so that's that's pretty much the whole world at that moment. That what they the known world they saw at that point. From the Brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain. And you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. In other words, he is going to harvest his people on that day. He's going to go and he's going to find his people. And there's going to be um, there's going to be grain and there's going to be chaff among the grain. And he's going to sift it and he's going to get his people out of uh, the places that they have been dispersed into. He's going to gather them in that moment. And in that day, a great trumpet will blow and those who were in uh, were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out of the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. And then we look at Matthew, chapter 24, verse 29 through 31. Jesus preached uh, this message right before his death, and he said immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, which is Jesus. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. By the way, this is also prophesied in the book of Daniel and he will send out his angels with the loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other then in 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 16 it says this for the lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout or a cry of command this isn't like a hey guys OK, this is a cry. Of, this is a war cry. This is a war cry, a shout with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Remember the first fruits feast, the dead in Christ are going to rise first at this moment. The trumpet's going to blow. And those who are left, those who are alive at that moment will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet The Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these things. What's the trumpet about? Well, there's going to be a future time where a trumpet is going to sound. And when that last trump shall blow, there's actually seven of them in the book of Revelation. And when the last trumpet blows, that begins another series of seven. You have seven scrolls. When the last scroll, the seventh scroll is opened, then the trumpets begin. And when the last trumpets blown, then the bowls of wrath begin to get poured out. And that's when it gets really, really, really bad. The scroll's bad. Trumpets bad. The, the bowls, wow. Super major, huge, very, really bad. OK, and, and so when the last trumpet, which I believe is this trumpet sounds, that's when if there's a rapture, that's the rapture when god will harvest his people and he will pull them out before he pours out his final wrath is that the beginning of the tribulation is that the middle of the tribulation is that at the end of the what point of the tribulation i I don't know i don't know if i i I, you can make an argument i don't have time for this but that we are in the tribulation uh if you read the seven scrolls in revelation you start reading those and look around you you'll go you know some of these look like they're happening we could be I don't know. But when the last one goes, then trumpets start blowing. When the last trumpet blows, that's the one it's talking about here. And this will be fulfilled. And at that moment, there won't be a gathering for Israel, but there will be a gathering for God's people from the four corners of the earth. And there will be a war cry because it's going to start a battle called the Battle of Armageddon. And the trumpet will be blown to gather and to initiate war. And it will be fulfilled. Are you ready for that moment? Are you ready for it? You, when's it going to happen? What has to happen for that? Nothing. Nothing. We don't all agree in this room as to how exactly the tribulation is going to play out. We don't all agree as as to how exactly the rapture will happen. Will there be a rapture? When will the rapture happen? We'll probably have a pretty general consensus. But I tell you what we do agree and what we must agree upon, and that is that Jesus is coming again to judge the world, to gather his people. And it can happen at any moment. Are you ready? And the answer to those questions should be result in us saying well maybe we should live our lives differently knowing that he could come any moment and so that's the feast of trumpets uh the day of atonement this is the day i just preached on this a couple weeks ago i hope you listened to that message um if you weren't here sins are cleansed and removed It is the most significant feast and celebration in israel's history it was on that day that god the two goats were, were were selected and one of them was taken and his blood was uh, he was sacrificed. His blood was taken into the Holy of Holies and put onto the Ark of the Covenant. And then the other one was all the sins of the nation were confessed upon it. And it was the scapegoat and it was removed and it was taken out of the eastern gate into the west as far as the. East is from the West. So your sins have been removed from you and God has forgiven in Christ. He has satisfied God's wrath and he has removed our sin from us. And so those have been fulfilled in Christ. Well, then why is it on the yet to be fulfilled things? Because many believe that it seems that this has a double meaning. Yes, it is fulfilled in Christ. So it has been partially fulfilled, but there's another piece of it that has not been completely fulfilled. And that relates to the nation of Israel. Romans eleven twenty five: 25, lest you be wise in your own sight. Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. What he's talking about, the church mystery, the mystery of the church age. There's going to be a season, there's going to be a period of time where God is going to be gracious. And all they saw is God promising the Messiah would come and conquer the world and uh, that he was going to come and conquer the world. And they didn't realize that he would come twice. First time was to, let me put it this way, they saw a mountain looking towards the future. And what they didn't see is that mountain, if you would move to the side, actually had two peaks and they couldn't see both peaks. You with me? The first peak was the first coming of Christ. The second peak was the second coming of Christ. The first coming, Jesus came as a suffering servant to die and to be the fulfillment of the Passover and the Day of Atonement and to, to, to provide salvation. The second one is where he will come back to judge the earth and to restore his people, the nation of Israel. And so there's two comings. They didn't see the separate separation of those. And so he says, I don't want you to be ignorant as to what this mystery is about. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, which means that most Israelites, many Israelites, they, they're parts, their hearts are partially hardened because of their unbelief and their unwillingness to accept Jesus as their Messiah. I, the, God has caused their hearts to be partially hardened, and this has created the space for the Gentiles to be ushered in and for the gospel to be preached and taken from ev- to every tribe, tongue, and nation of the world. And until that is complete, until that's complete, the mystery and the church age will continue. But when that's completed, then this happens. This is what's going to happen. And so, so going backwards, what's going to happen when it's completed? This is what's going to happen. Chapter 12 of verse 10 of Zechariah. I will pour out on the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and for mercy. So that when they look upon me. On him whom they have pierced who they pierce Jesus, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over their firstborn. And then couple chapter 13, verse 1 says, On that day they, there shall be a fountain opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. And this is the salvation of the nation of Israel. And so it's been fulfilled, but it, partially part of it has not been fulfilled And so it's anticipating the God bringing his whole plan together, which leads us to the last, the Feast of Tabernacles. And it celebrates two things. uh, And for simplicity, I'm just going to summarize them briefly for you. The first one is it remembers that wilderness wanderings which uh, we have recorded in the book of, of Numbers. God said, I'm going to give you a promised land, just go get it. And they went to it and they said, I don't know if we can beat the people that live there to get it. And they doubted God and God judged them and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And at the end of that 40 years, they did get it. Um, but there was judgment during that time. And so he, it remembers the wilderness wanderings. But it also anticipates and looks forward to a time where there will, there will be a, what many call the millennial kingdom, a thousand years of peace, where God will dwell on earth in the person of Christ. The Jesus, second person of the Trinity, second person of... You know, Jesus, who's God, will dwell with us, will be on his throne in Jerusalem and we will dwell with him during that thousand years and during that period of time um, that we will be his sheep and he will be our shepherd and he will be our pas- pastor and uh, he will pasture his people. And so the millennial kingdom and peace on earth and that is what is anticipating. And so I, I want to end with a couple thoughts. What, what, what are these feasts and traditions? What do they mean for us today? What are the traditions for the New Testament uh, that, that God has called us to? Well, uh, simply put, let me give you a couple verses to think about and and to summarize these feast of traditions of the New Testament. Well, first of all, Colossians chapter two, verse sixteen through seventeen says this: Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in the questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadows of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, the goal is for not for us not to come away from Leviticus twenty-three. And they'll hear all of those feasts and go, wow, we are so disobedient. We need to start doing these feasts. We should be doing all these feasts. Even though it would not be bad for you to do parts of them or to celebrate them in some form as a teaching point for your children, to teach them about the things of God and what they mark. These things have been fulfilled in Christ. Second, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 says, "...for since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never buy the same sacrifices..." that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. These feasts don't fix anybody. They commemorate. They anticipate. They will, most of them have been fulfilled. Some of them have yet to be fulfilled, but all of them point to one reality, and that is Christ. Christ. Jesus has provided salvation for all of us, and he's the point. So what should we celebrate in the New Testament? I am so glad that you asked in conclusion. In the New Testament, here's what he's given us to celebrate. Jesus You need to, if you haven't, repent of your sin and put your faith and trust in Christ and be saved. And if you have, you need to be baptized. Baptism is a picture of your confession of faith and trust in Christ that you have identified yourself with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Baptism does not save anybody. Baptism is not salvific. Baptism is a testimony, and we do it to celebrate, to commemorate, to... Um, to party, to spike the ball, to do an end zone dance, if you will, after salvation. It's a way to just celebrate what God has done as he saved somebody. We're due for one. We've got several people that need to be baptized. That's something we need to have. If you're interested, if you've never been baptized as a believer to, and uh, you know, having an understanding, you've repented and trusted in Christ and you know that you know Christ, you've never been baptized since that, then you need to be baptized. Talk to me, we'll, we'll set that up. We'd love to do that is part of that the second thing we are to do and that happens once when you follow christ but then the second part is is the lord's supper the lord's supper is a way we celebrate yet again the death burial resurrection of christ that jesus blood was shed for us body was broken for us and jesus told us to do this as often as we do it we are to do it to commemorate to to remember his death burial resurrection and anticipate his return when he will come back again and so that's another time it's like a strobe light to remind us of whose followers of christ it's to be done by believers so those are two things we're commanded to do we're not commanded to do any of the feasts or any other stuff although they're teachable interesting helpful but we are commanded and ordained by god to do these two things and then there's the third thing that we're supposed to do and that is we are supposed to gather on the lord's day why do we gather on the lord's day i thought we're supposed to gather on the sabbath and that was the the day of rest after the six days of work well because the work is over I'm going to say it again. We don't gather on the Sabbath anymore because the work is over. We don't gather on that day because the work is over. Now we gather to celebrate what God has for us in the week ahead. That Jesus died, was buried, and then rose again. What day did Jesus rise again on Sunday? And that's why we gather on Sunday. The resurrection is to be celebrated every time we gather on Sunday. That's the Lord's day. And so we gather because of the finished work of Christ. And because of the finished work of Christ, my life is going to be different this week. I'm not trying to earn. I'm not going to wake up tomorrow and start doing the rituals and the rules and the whatever. I'm, I am living in reality that salvation has been provided. It's done. It is finished. And so that is why the believers met on Sunday. And so a couple quick verses. John chapter 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Acts chapter 2, they were all praying and worshiping on the Lord's day. And and then the Holy Spirit filled them and and sparked a great uh, spiritual awakening. And so that's Pentecost. And then in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, so the body of Christ had come together, they're worshiping, they're celebrating the Lord's Supper, and on that day, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Revelation chapter one, verse uh, 10. I was in the spirit, John, in his revelation, in the book of Revelation. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a, cla- a loud voice like a trumpet. He was worshiped. He was doing church by himself because he was exiled on an island and didn't have anybody else to worship with first Corinthians chapter 16 verses one through two. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia. So you also are to do on the first day of the week, each of you, when you come together to worship on uh, Sunday, Lord's day, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting um, when I come. In other words, he's saying, go ahead and start setting apart some money Because we're going to take up an offering for some needs back in Jerusalem and just go ahead and start doing that now. So when I get there, it's not there's not a crunch trying to get let's just go and take care of that now. So when you gather weekly, make sure you're pulling some aside to help those in need specifically in the church of uh, Jerusalem. So what does this mean? Well, it means a couple things. One of the things it means is that we taught we were planning on meeting on Christmas Day, which happens to fall on Sunday. And then we thought, well, I don't know. There's a lot of people traveling. I don't want to be legalistic. We don't want to be just mean, just meet just because we're we're going to meet on Sunday because that's the day that we all meet and we will not. Well, I don't you can open your presence another day of the week. That's the day we're going to. And I don't want to have that. It's not about legal. The work is finished on the cross. But the reality is, I don't know if you know this. And this is going to probably be unsettling for some of you. But you know that um, Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. True story wasn't probably springtime probably close to my birthday april 13th but it wasn't it wasn't in december it's all the pictures of walking in the snow and then carrying a bit you know it, it wasn't it's not what it's not how it went down now historical fact jesus was born historical fact jesus was born worth celebrating are we commanded to celebrate it? no no we're not Nowhere in the new testament is anything about singing songs and hymns and Christmas carols. It's not in the book, okay? It's not in the book. Is it bad? No, it's not bad. It's fine. Do it. It's awesome. And if you got on Sunday, December 25th, you got family stuff to do and you're going to be out of town, whatever, no guilt, no guilt. Go do it. Great. Whatever. Fine. No problem. There's not guilt, There's not guilt. But as a, as a body of believers, it has come to my awareness that uh, there is a historical reality that we celebrate on Sundays, and it's called the Lord's Day because it is the day of the resurrection. And that needs to shift from being an annual celebration on Easter to a weekly celebration that sparks a week lived differently because the first day starts with the resurrection and that affects every other day that follows. And we do that as a rhythm and we gather weekly because we need the encouragement of believers and we need the reminder of the resurrection every time we gather. And so for those reasons, we're going to have, we're, we're have a simple little family time on, uh, on Christmas Day. And so if you can be here, come. If you're coming out of guilt because you feel like um, somebody's going to think bad of you, uh, please don't come. I'm, I'm not thinking bad of it. I'm not thinking bad about you. You know, if you need to come in your pajamas, come in your pajamas. That's fine. Okay, you don't have to dress up. It's a casual time. Bring your hot chocolate and your donuts and your partially eaten whatever casserole with you. Bring some presents. That's fine. Whatever. But if you can come, come, and we'll be here. You want to bring your family? Bring your family. Of all things, talk to your kids about the resurrection of the Lord's day and what it's significant and historical reality and fact of that. And that is what that is about. Uh, John Piper, uh, he summarizes, kind of answered the question, what do we meet on the Lord's Day? What do Christians gather? What is this all about? He made this great statement. It's good. The reasons Christians go to church on Sunday is because we have been rescued from our sins, united with a risen living Christ and with each other through faith in Jesus. And because of that union with Jesus and with others, the Bible, God's word, Calls us to regular weekly expressions of our corporate joy and thankfulness before God in worship. Not just isolated Christian individuals scattered around, but corporate gatherings, praying, singing, hearing God's word, and celebrating the ordinances of Jesus. And that's why we gather on Sundays. What do we do in the New Testament? Well, we, we celebrate baptism, the Lord's Supper. And we gather on the Lord's day and we celebrate the fulfillment of the seven feasts in anticipation of three of them that haven't quite yet been fulfilled waiting for that last trumpet to sound.